And the winner is John Mallo for Star Wars. Hello and welcome to this episode of Categorically Oscars. I'm Chris. And I'm Cal. And this week we are diving back into what is fast becoming one of my favorite categories to discuss on the show. Um, and back to that great decade for cinema, the 70s. We are looking at Best Costume Design 1977. Um, devotees will remember we did Costume Design 78 back, uh, back in the day. So we'll see how this one from the year before stacks up. Um, and you chose 78 costume design, and now you've chosen 77 costume design. So what led you to this? Well, I don't know what the costume design branch was smoking in the 70s, um, but <laughs> they really were outside the box compared to what some of the other branches have chosen. Um, and I guess that's partly because they had their favorite designers in the branch and and maybe those designers themselves were doing work in, in kooky films at this time, sort of late in their career. Some of these uh, women mm -hmm. we're going to talk about. Um, but yeah, there was the promise of talking about another disaster film, which we love doing. Um, there's a Sondheim musical, which I'm not so familiar with, uh, but I am a fan of a couple of his musicals. And I hadn't heard of The Other Side of Midnight at all, so that was a mystery to me as well. Um and then you've got two of the biggest movies of, of 1977, Star Wars and Julia, um, certainly in terms of the nominations anyway. So I was eager to revisit those. Um, so here we are again with a very strange bunch of movies. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, the costume designers were definitely doing something all their own uh, at this time. So the nominees were Airport 77, costume designers, the legendary Edith Head, with her final career nomination, I believe, of something like 35. Uh, and she was joined by Burton Miller on this, uh, on this particular film. Julia, costume designed by Anthea Silbert. A Little Night Music by Florence Klotz. The Other Side of Midnight by another mainstay of the branch, Irene Sharaf. And the winner was Star Wars, and costume designed by John Molo. So we talked about Airport um, back when we did Best Picture 1970, back when uh, the disaster genre was kind of just getting started. And at the time, it was novel enough to earn a Best Picture nomination and a bunch of other, um, and win for Best Supporting Actress. This film... Um, not so successful at the Oscars, getting two nominations, this one and Art Direction. How do you think Airport 77 stacks up against the original? Well, <laughs> I mean, to, to begin with the premise, it's, um, it's a bit more of a convoluted premise in a, in a sense. It's certainly a very audacious heist that is planned in this one. Um, I wish it was more entertaining. Uh, you know, I kind of think for long periods, this installment is quite dull. Um, but the heist itself, I mean, it's very ambitious. <laughs> this group of 
of thieves have hijacked the plane with the intent of, of stealing all of this priceless artwork. And um, they've even rigged the air conditioning system with sleeping gas, which is just the funniest sequence you've ever seen where just everybody on the plane is like dropping like flies. Because at first, I think the first one to go is like Olivia de Havilland's friend. And she's like surrounding him saying, you know, are you okay, Henry? And I'm thinking, oh my God, he's having like a medical emergency. And then she goes down like a sack of potatoes on the floor. (laughs) And the whole uh, plane just then uh, goes to sleep. Um, So I kind of think that there are ingenious elements to the planned heist. But then surely the sleeping gas eventually becomes a, a huge plot hole, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I was going to say that the dropping like flies sequence is not as ridiculous as the one in, say, Goldfinger, when everybody just kind of gently lays themselves down. Um, But of course, in that film, they are faking it. So I suppose there's something to that. But in this film, they do collapse a little more realistically, but it does kind of just become comedic after like the second or third person. So um, yeah, definitely a weird decision um on the part of the robbers uh i i feel like they could have come up with a less strange solution to the problem of the passengers maybe just ignoring them because they can't really do anything about what they're doing but i don't know you know uh film villains have to make some decisions i guess yeah because the conversation between the hijackers in the cockpit seems to suggest that they're not expecting the passengers to wake up mm-hmm. until well after they've managed to land on the island and transport the cargo from the plane. Yep. So either they've made a huge misjudgment or the movie is trying to say that the plane's turbulence has woken them up uh, before it should, which to me would not happen if they were drugged. If they're drugged, they're drugged, right? I would think, yeah. I mean, that would kind of undermine the point of drugging somebody if just jostling them around would wake them up. Um, So yeah, I think it's a plot hole for sure. Um, Because, yeah, they. I mean, they left it going for a while. So I think it's just a plot hole. They definitely gassed the hell out of those passengers. Yeah. I think also, I mean, this one doesn't make as much use of the cast as the original did um because you've got a stacked cast we've got jack lemon we've got lee grant we've got olivia de Havilland, um and the list goes on james stewart in a very sort of thankless role who's barely on screen um just <laughs> mm-hmm. just getting the paycheck but i think um the relationships needed a lot more work you know i think it didn't have the as interesting relationships as airport does. Um, and the payoff of them averting death isn't as strong as the payoff of them saving the plane from the terrorist in the original. Um, yeah. And like, I think in sort of grounding the movie in this relationship between Jack Lemon and Brenda Vaccaro, which is just such a, a poor relationship and I don't really understand what she sees in him. Um, and there's this sort of will they won't they get married strand to it 
throughout. Um, and at the end, it's kind of like implied that they're now going to get married and live happily ever after. But he t- she tells him he loves her and he just doesn't say it back. And I was thinking like... I know. Like that is out of order. Yeah. That was, I mean, that was ridiculous. I mean, in a movie like this, to say that's the most ridiculous part, but it is. Yeah. After all they went through and after all we're supposed to care about their relationship, man, he really leaves her hanging there. <laughs> I did have, I did laugh when he's like in the dinghy, um, just looking like he's on holiday. <laughs> 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 when he's escaped from the plane, he's just like paddling along in the dinghy. Hi guys, how are you doing? <laughs> mhm. Yep, just get, just getting some sun. No big deal. <laughs> but no, I I definitely agree that the relationships are are very flimsy here. Um, but I think that the you know the original airport kind of invented the disaster genre, or at least it popularized it, and so it was still not quite fully. Um, what it would become and now by airport 77 we're well in the um, era where the disaster film is just an excuse for Hollywood actors to come together and get a paycheck Um, and so I think that that's where we're at now uh, with airport 77 the um, the relationships are just kind of quickly dropped in a few stereotypical fights between Lee Grant and Christopher Lee and um, the rest of them uh, which are hilarious, but certainly not deep by any sense. Um, and then, of course, uh, I, I forgot that Olivia de Havilland was even in this. Um, and she say, she definitely has kind of a meatier role than she does in The Swarm. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, at least she gets Joseph Cotton in this one and she survives. And she gets to, like, play this poke, this card sharp, which is just so funny. <laughs> um I, I, yeah, I think she. I like her so much better in this than in the swarm. Um, so that's a plus. Uh, but yeah, everybody's. I think just there to to get the paycheck at this point. Yeah, I think. Well, I mean, what is Lee Grant doing in this film? Like he, it's sort of like an unsteady model for for Mia Farrow in Death on the Nile. Like it's it's on that <laughs> level. Like. So much hysterics and the clutching of the sherry glass, you know, as as if it's the most important thing in the world. And uh, (laughs) the scene where they pour alcohol down his throat is just hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) As well as when when she has the fight with Brenda Vaccaro and Vaccaro just smacks her on the chin. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Um, there are some there are some funny moments in this movie, um, but I think overall it's probably less cohesive and less successful than Airport was. Yeah, definitely. And even the Poseidon adventure, which we talked about as well, right? Yeah, yeah. I think I think you have the disaster movies that are stacked cast, um, big budget, big sets, but still tell. A good story with good characters i think films like yeah airport Poseidon adventure towering inferno even but after that it became kind of a genre unto itself we get movies like this like the swarm which are undeniably fun but definitely thin compared to their predecessors what about the fact that the plane is underwater it's uh i guess you know there was a pitch meeting 
uh, and maybe somebody suggested the plane goes too high and they get trapped in space and that got rejected. So they thought, well, what can we do that we haven't done on before? What if we just sink it, you know, and conveniently in a spot in the ocean that's only like a hundred feet deep or something like that, if that. I guess they just figure at this point, does logic even matter? Like the fact that... Right. Because surely the plane would break apart, right? I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe um, if we have any engineers listening or, or people who have designed planes could tell us, but um, I, I don't know. I would think, but I guess it's not that deep, right? It's deep. It's like it's deep enough to be scary, obviously, but like they can leave the plane and not get any problem with the pressure. So they can't be more than 100 feet deep or if that, right? So maybe the plane is just in that sweet spot uh, underwater where it stays together. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> okay, I like that. Um, in terms of the costumes, I think they're okay. Uh, I'm a bit confused as to why all these disaster films were getting nominations. Um, you know, at least with this one, you've got Edith Head, so you can understand the prestige involved with that. But in terms of the other ones, The Swarm, which we talked about, When Time Ran Out, which is a dire film from 1980 that also got a costume design nomination. So, I I mean, is it just that people love to see movie stars dressed up? I guess. Um, but honestly, they're not that dressed up in this, are they? Apart from Lee Grant. Yeah, of course. Um, and I guess, you know, Olivia de Havilland always had to look fabulous. So that was in her contract, I'm sure. But yeah, for the most part, it seems like everybody's just wearing their normal clothes. Like this seems to me like the swarm level costume design. Um, and the the only thing that's really seems designed is, yeah, Lee Grant and maybe the uh, stewardess and pilot uniforms, but they're not really anything to write home about. Not at all, to be honest. And what was with that terrible mask the guy put on where you could see his real hair behind the... Yeah, I, I don't understand what the point of that was, because he wasn't, like, disguising himself as anybody. And it it didn't seem like he was known for any reason that he had to like put on a fake mustache or any but everybody would be like hey aren't you that other guy <laughs> so i yeah I do not understand the point of that you'd think that these films would be highlighting the security um the need for security in airports a bit more like it seems like airports really didn't learn <laughs> from all of these movies these airport movies but um yeah, yeah. Because still in this day and age, they were just basically walking onto the plane, weren't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There wasn't much of a challenge. No, it's pretty uh, pretty easy. Yeah, the 70s were the... Actually, there's a book on the subject about how the 70s were the golden age of hijacks. And because, yeah, I, th I think airport, these movies just kind of demonstrate how easy it was to get access to a plane I don't think it's that exaggerated, even. Oh, dear. And all that priceless artwork, I guess, lost at the bottom of the ocean, right? Oh, yeah. 
I mean, they they kind of just abruptly never mention that again. Obviously, more pressing matters arise, but I, I would have liked to know what happened or have somebody mention something about the artwork. Um, maybe James Stewart, once he had his grandson safe, he could have, you know, spared a tear for all those priceless works of art. <laughs> he should have shed a tear for for the movie, I think. Mm. Well, he probably did until, as we say, he got his paycheck, which I'm sure was substantial. But yeah, clearly Olivia de Havilland got a taste for this kind of movie, because yeah, she was back for The Swarm the following year, and she managed to talk... Uh, Fred McMurray and Ben Johnson into joining her. So, well, I guess like these kind of films were probably like a reunion for those guys, <laughs> those old Hollywood oh, yeah. guys. Yeah, just oh, it'd be nice. Be nice to see Fred again. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I'm sure they did. I'm sure they had fun making these movies. I mean, it looks like they look like fun to make. Because who gives a shit? You know. Uh, it's just for it's just for the spectacle, so they probably weren't under a whole lot of pressure. Yeah, and they they'd all have to like pretend to be, you know, when the plane's in turbulence and pretend to like. <laughs> there are no rotating sets <laughs> like the Poseidon Adventure. This is just like pretend you're uh, unsteady, you know. Yeah, while well, we shake the camera. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that that's those Academy Award acting chops coming through. As we move on to Julia, um, 10 nominations this year and winning for Adapted Screenplay and Best Supporting Actress, Vanessa Redgrave, which uh, and also Best Supporting Actor for Jason Robards, but I was going to say that Vanessa Redgrave's speech uh, at the Oscars, I think, became more famous than her role in this film. Yeah, although I think... There are obviously parallels with the um, political activism. But um, yeah, so this was adapted from a chapter in Lillian Hellman's memoir, Pentimento, um, which was supposedly an account of her smuggling money into Germany uh, on behalf of a friend. And that was later disputed, um, even became the subject of a lawsuit. And I think even Fred Zinnemann, himself said of Hellman, my relations with her were very guarded and ended in pure hatred. So it certainly seems as if uh, she rubbed people up the wrong way and was not a genuine character. At least that's according to um, a few people. Yeah. Well, then it's kind of sad because if she's not, if she's making this up, she could have made up a more interesting part for herself. Mm. Because Lillian is such kind of a dud in this film for me. Um, she just kind of drifts. She randomly forgets her friend um, to write this play. But who the who the hell knows what this play is? We never see it or hear what it's about. It's just successful. And then she just kind of falls into this um, mission. And why is it her? We don't really know. Um, and a problem I guess I had with the film is that it doesn't really give me much to hold on to in terms of the relationship between Lillian and Julia. 
like the flashbacks to me aren't really enough to establish this close everlasting connection that they have and it always just kind of never made a whole lot of sense i don't know did you get that this did you get that sense i think i didn't see it as an everlasting friendship so for me what i I liked most about it is that it's a story about connection and friendship but it's sort of told through disconnection like we only really see I mean, the flashbacks don't even matter. We only really have Julia and Lillian in that restaurant scene, right? And that's, I think that's where it all got way better for me. Like, I think there's a lot about that scene that enriches the story. And you can see that there is a connection there. But, you know, the feelings are still there. But I think also the stuff underneath the surface, like, you know, kind of asking questions like, do we naturally drift apart from our friends? You know, are the friendships that last the most rewarding? Because there is sort of something unspoken between them that feels like, you know, what what um, brought them together in childhood doesn't really exist anymore. Um, so I, I kind of found a lot to unpack in that scene. Um, and I think it brings questions to the forefront but I agree that it's sort of very, there is a big disconnection for a lot of the film between what kind of it wants us to think about Lillian. And um, it did feel like it wasn't very focused for a lot of the, a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I do like that. Um, idea of exploring a friendship drifting apart and the connections drifting apart. I just don't know why it had to be wrapped up in a story of um, espionage, which just kind of chugged along with, you know, Lillian just kind of blankly staring at all these people, very openly steering her in the right direction constantly telling her what to do um and that scene just dragged it's supposed to be tense i think but to me i just got bored watching her get shepherded between like literally just handed off from person to person in an extremely obvious way uh in order to get the money across the border um yeah i mean if again if lillian hellman's gonna make shit up you know, make up something better. (laughs) It does kind of make you wonder, is Lillian Hellman making herself a hero? Is she trying to portray a more positive impression um, that she's a a nobler person than she actually is? Because they kind of push this idea at the beginning that she's got a really bad temper. She throws the typewriter out the window. Um, And for me, like, particularly with Jane Fonda playing that this role, Fonda's strengths as an actress does don't really lie in, in anger. And I think there are a couple of quite misjudged scenes from her at the beginning of the movie that made me worried about the performance. But the longer it went, the more I thought Fonda got into it and blossomed a bit more. And I think she's probably even boosted by Vanessa Redgrave in the restaurant scene, because there is something about Redgrave in that scene that 
goes beyond acting for me. It's sort of, she just seems like she's just being, um, which I think is probably the best thing you can say about an actor. So in terms of, I thought Redgrave was incredible uh, because I didn't doubt the character for a second. Fonda, a little bit shakier, but got better as it went on. Yeah, I agree. Um, Redgrave's great in this. And yeah, Fonda is better in quiet moments. Um, I don't know if I've ever seen her do a yelling scene where I thought she nailed it or an angry scene or a throwing the typewriter kind of scene. Um, But yeah, Redgrave, amazing throughout. I just wish for a film named after her character, she had been in more of it. Um, Not just referenced, but I think Julia needed to be physically present more than she was because she was obviously the more interesting character. Well, even the death scene is barely a scene, is it? It's sort of just a snapshot, a five-second snapshot, really. It's not like, you know, the film could have really dragged out that scene um, and gotten rid of some of the train, you know, with Lillian and instead, you know, had a 10-minute scene in which, you know, involved intention and eventually Judy is murder. But we don't get that. We get literally a five-second clip um it's definitely the film definitely suffers from a lack of focus suddenly we're back at the beach house um the ending feels very abrupt there's a scene a casual scene with um Jason Robards and Jane Fonda talking about the kid you know Judy's lost child where is the child and that really doesn't feel like an ending to me and then the, the very next scene is her with that stunning, stunning um, shot from Douglas Slocum cinematography of the, the through the reeds on the boat where it sort of begins and ends with that scene, which is just wonderful to look at. Um, but I think it's an ending. It it didn't work. It, it You know, it didn't feel right. Yeah. Yeah, it was just very abrupt and not really... Um, there are films that don't give a sense of closure in a good way. And I think this kind of was the opposite. It just kind of puttered out and ended with Lillian narrating. Oh yeah. And they all died too. And I'm alive. Just kind of, again, make something better up. You know, you're a writer. You have to wonder if there was more in the story than we see here, or more shot, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I am curious to read this, at least the chapter that it was based on, to see if there was anything else that maybe got cut for that, you know, thrilling train sequence. What did you think about the supporting actor nominations? Why? Um, I mean, Jason, like, Maximilian Schell's in one scene, and he doesn't do much. Um... I I think he's a great actor, but I don't understand his nomination. And Jason Robards, I don't get his nomination, much less his win. Um, He doesn't impact the plot at all. And I know you don't have to, to get a supporting nomination or even a win. But if you don't, you have to be memorable, right? You have to contribute in some other way. And 
I just feel like he is always just kind of grumbling and bad tempered and saying, Oh, this is bad or oh this is well this is good now. Um <laughs> but that's all he's that's all he does. I don't know. I don't get it. I don't get either of these. Yeah, I it feels like the the nomination and win is for playing Dashiell Hammett, but mm-hmm. I mean, I can understand the nomination if if you're going to say, okay, it's for playing this famous person, but he's just a shoulder to cry on. There's nothing else. He doesn't get his own scene with anybody but Fonda, you know, so he doesn't get his own story. She calls him once and um, she says, who are you in bed with? But they don't. Why why can't we have it from his perspective on the phone in bed with someone? And that would then give us a window into that character. You know, I think the film could definitely have used a bit more of a different perspective from Lillian's. Yep, agreed. Um, Anthea Silbert's costumes, what did you think? I mean, I, I feel like a lot of films get a nomination for costume design just by being a period piece. Um, I think we ran into this with Maverick as well when we did costume design 94. And I, I, the costume design here doesn't have a great deal to stand out. I mean, the characters are wearing clothing and the clothing is period appropriate. But beyond that, I, I don't get a lot of synergy between the costumes and the characters or the story. I think I liked the costumes enough. I think it's the only film where we've got a costume element as a plot point, <laughs> which is interesting with with the fur hat. Um, I think what I liked about it is I think the quality looks a lot better than it, the costumes do in a couple of these other movies we've talked about, like the actual quality of the material just looks um, more expensive. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the creativity, it's maybe not as strong. But I thought it fit in with the era. Yeah. I mean, there wasn't anything distracting about it. It was very good in recreating the era in that regard. But but then we've also seen films like when we did Bullets Over Broadway, it recreated the era while also bringing out more about the characters and bringing out, I think, their individual, the individual sides of them. So it... it I just I think that the a little more care could have got into the costumes to integrate it more, but whatever. But the hat, yes, is a pivotal point. So maybe that was what bumped it up into in the eyes of the branch. Like, oh my god, a hat actually plays a crucial role in the plot. Then we got to nominate that hat. Just to wonder, do hats that just kind of sit on top of the head and don't even cover the ears, do, do they have any practical function? I don't think so. I think it's just look at how rich I am. I can afford a, a dead animal on my head, you know? Um, <laughs> right. There didn't seem much of a point. Uh, she was going to Moscow, which is the, you know, the sort of uh, the place to uh, wear your fur hat. That's true, yeah. But yeah, just see these hats, and they're, yeah, they're made of fur, which, you know, I guess is warm, obviously. I don't want to wear fur because it's horrible, but if you're going to have a warm hat, 
but it just kind of like floats on top of your head like that. It just seems a weird thing to do, but whatever. It's the fashion of the time. Who are we to judge? Exactly. All right. So from Julia to a little night music, as you say, a, well, this is a adaptation of an adaptation, um, a film adaptation of a musical, which was itself an adaptation of an Ingmar Bergman film, Smiles of a Summer Night, from uh, the mid-50s. And this one is a musical, and a lot of singing. Like, like twice as much singing with the same amount of songs as a normal musical, I would say. And some questionable singing, I would add. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I haven't seen Smiles of a Summer Night, um, but I have seen Noel Coward's work and the importance of being earnest, and that's kind of what re- it reminded me of a little bit. Um, it feels like a sort of play on these early comedies of comedy of manners, if you will, and it is this this society farce about a lot of rich people swapping lovers and scheming behind other people's backs and and that can be funny and it can be worthwhile but I have to say that I didn't really care about any of the characters in this film apart from maybe Charlotte um, because I think Diana Rigg does well compared to everybody else but overall I found myself shrugging and thinking why should I care about this Yep, um, I kind of had the same reaction. Uh, I saw Smiles of a Summer Night a long time ago when I was a teenager, um, just like kind of burning through Ingmar Bergman's entire filmography, as you do when you're a teenager. And (laughs) I don't remember too many specifics of it, but I think I remember it fondly compared to this. Um, And yeah, it, it was just kind of a drag, which is a shame for such a farcical and whimsical kind of what it wants to be very farcical and whimsical. Um, And certainly the actors are approaching it, I think, farcically. Um, But it never really got going for me. Um, It just kind of chugged along. And too much overlapping singing. Like, it was cute the first time, but then the more... Then you had, like, four characters singing at once sometimes, and it just got... Hard to track. I did like the song A Weekend in the Country. I thought that was the best song on the in the film. Uh, but the rest just kind of annoyed me. Yeah, I liked that one too. Def- yeah, that was definitely the best. Mm-hmm. And the only one for me where the overlapping singing actually seemed to work. Like I kind of enjoyed it. Um, the rest of the time it, it just didn't do it for me. I My biggest problem with it what, and this is also something about a, another film we're going to talk about later. The fact that none of the women even think for a second about blaming the men for all of the bullshit that they put them through. It's always like Charlotte and Anne are so focused on Desiree as the evil seducer of their men and they have to join forces to get her. It's like, 
come on, your husbands are assholes who are cheating on you. Be mad at them. What what is this anger focused on Desiree? She didn't she did not do anything. Your husbands are stepping out on you. They're philanderers. And not for a second do we see them ever be like, oh, maybe we should just leave these guys. Or maybe we should at least be angry with them. But they don't. And I, I hated that. I mean, I don't know if that's um, part of the satire or if that's a product of the original material being in from the 50s. Um, but yeah, I agree with you on that and I do agree about the overlapping dialogue because I had to text you when I was watching it and it's the scene where it's the song where there's about four people um, singing Anne and Frederick is singing there's someone out on the street singing I'm kind of like where have you come from Um, and it's all overlapping which Sondheim did a lot and it can work like it does work Um, but with this I just felt like putting my hands over my ears like I just text you saying, "This what a bloody racket this is. This is just... <laughs> no. <laughs> um, and I think, I don't think we can put this all down to the music. I think the vocals and the mixing has got to take some of the blame. But it just sounds so shoddy and unbearable at times. Yeah, it's really kind of... Yeah. Um... I don't, again, I don't know. Maybe Stephen Sondheim just got into a groove of it and just said, yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna write every song like this. And you're right. It's also down to the mixing and the questionable vocal qualities of some of these singers. Um, like the, their, voice, their voices just don't blend. Like some of them are okay on their own, but then when you put them together, they just sound so discordant. Um, yeah. Was it, is it really all of them singing? Like, I've never heard Elizabeth Taylor, for example, sing. Um, was it really her, do you know? I really hope so, because if it wasn't, I'm thinking, how on earth should he would get somebody better than that? Like, right. <laughs> I mean, Elizabeth Taylor just lollops through this film looking thoroughly miserable and bored by everything that's going on. Um I just wonder, you know, why are you going to take this role if you're not going to enjoy it? I just feel like... And sending the clowns is supposed to be this momentous moment, this moment of realisation. And it just goes down like a damp squib because her vocals are terribly wobbly. It's got to be her because they're so wobbly. And I think there's a particular irony to her singing the line, losing my timing this late in my career... Because the delivery, some of the lines in the song, but also some of the dialogue overall in the film, I just couldn't understand why she was delivering those lines in that way. Um, I think, you know, this was pretty much a disaster for her, like from, from start to finish. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Well, maybe she wanted a part in Airport 77 and got turned down, so this was like a booby prize. <laughs> But I think a lot of it does feel lazy, like it's a bit like um, the kind of plot you'd find in a bad sitcom where they can't even be bothered to create logical reasons why all of these people end up together at Desiree's mother's house. It's sort of just 
cobbled together. Um, just feels like it's done on the spur of the moment and they could have really worked that uh, in in a more logical way. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, Harold Prince more known for a, as his theater director, I think, than a film director. And I don't think there's anything too amazing about the direction. Um, there's attention paid to the staging of the musical numbers, as you would expect from somebody with a musical theater background. But as a director, um, he doesn't seem to do much. No, no. I think he'd only done one film before this, which was Something for Everyone with Angela Lansbury. And that's a real chore to get through. And I think the direction of this leaves a lot to be desired. There's so many over-the-shoulder shots, which made me feel like we were watching like a TV movie or a TV show. I don't know if that's anything to do with Elizabeth Taylor's weight gain, trying to mask that at all, but it just... Because she does look quite spelt at the beginning of the movie, right? And then yeah, at the end, it's sort of like she'd... <laughs> she looks like twice the size. Yeah, she kind of... She kind of pinballs a bit um, in the weight department. Some scene, I mean, obviously they probably didn't shoot it in sequence. So yeah, some scenes she's thin and then she's a little heavier and then a little thinner, um, which is, you know, an interesting choice. But um, yeah, I agree. Just kind of a disaster for her. Yeah. And I think also the lighting is horrible especially at the end where you've got all the action taking place in the grounds of the house at night. It just, you can barely make out what's going on at times. I did. Okay. The, the parts that I did like were kind of the dick measuring contest between Frederick and the count. Um, those were pretty <laughs> funny. Uh, Frederick was appropriately glib and the count was, you know, bar- you know, military rage, and as they verbally sparred, that was also... I, I enjoyed those scenes, probably most out of the film. Yeah, the scene where they meet in Desiree's bedroom is actually pretty good. Um, and I did enjoy Lawrence uh, Guitard as the Count. I thought he was one of the brighter points in the movie. Um, and also the costume design from Florence Cotts, who's bit of a legend in the theatre world six Tonys um, and this was her only Oscar nomination but I think overall they're pretty good um, I don't think they extend beyond what you'd expect for this kind of thing um, they're kind of gaudy which suits the era but it, they could maybe look a little bit more refined I feel like maybe the budget wasn't there yeah I agree. I mean, compared to the first two films, there does seem to be more of an effort um, in the costume design um, and more of an effort to kind of give each character their an individual look. But yeah, it doesn't stretch as far as it could, uh, which is a shame because I feel like this is the kind of story and the kind of characters where uh, they could really go all out with the costume design. Um, and so, yeah, maybe the budget didn't quite stretch, but at least there was an attempt, uh, at least in comparison to the other two movies. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I do like Sondheim overall. I know we've kind of trashed this movie, but um, he did a musical called Passion, which is just wonderful. Um, and also Into the Woods, I'm kind of a fan of the, the musical, if not the film they made of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I like Stephen Sondheim overall, for sure. All right. Well, then, uh, now we move on to, I think, the film we've both been waiting for. Um, the Other Side of Midnight. And what a film this is. Um, yeah, adapted <laughs> from Sidney Sheldon's uh, groundbreaking 1973 novel, um, which was a number one bestseller. And all I can say is Sidney Sheldon, take a bow. What a story this yep. is. It's got everything, <laughs> everything and more. We've got death by firing squad. We've got miscarriage by coat hanger. We've got a place in the sun. Um, death scene reworked inside a Greek cave network. I, <laughs> I but what a thoroughly entertaining film. Yes. Um, yeah, when... When we both got finished uh, watching this, you you texted me how much you enjoyed it, and I said, "Yes, this is everything. Everything I wanted once is not enough to be is in this film. This film actually delivers on that promise, and it's amazing. I mean, two hours. I've never had two hours and forty five minutes fly by like that because I was just so much enjoying the ride. Um, yeah." Pure trash, but so entertaining. <laughs> I could, honestly, it could have been four hours. I still would have, I would have wanted to watch more. Yeah, you know. Um, apparently, there's even a sequel. Did you know about this? Oh, well, that kind of is a shame because the other side of Midnight already sounds like a sequel. But um, what is the sequel called? The sequel's called Memories of Midnight, and it's they made it into a film again with Omar Sharif as Constantine. Um, uh-huh. And the way that it unfolds is that it's about Catherine and she has amnesia and doesn't know that, that Larry and Noel were, were wrongfully convicted, which is kind of disappointing to me because I think they, they missed a trick um, with the ending to this movie, Other Side of Midnight. Um, like after the firing squad, I would have loved if it had just zoomed out and had this long tracking shot over the sea and then just had like maybe a sun lounger on a beach and a woman in a big hat from behind, you know, being brought a cocktail and then the reveal that it's Catherine and she, she knew about this all along. She doesn't care that they're going to be put to death. I just think that would be like fabulous. Yeah. Oh, no, yeah. Catherine, for all she went through, definitely deserved to have a hand in what happened. Um, because, yeah, even though she, um, yeah, she spends the whole movie getting used, and it would have been nice to sh- have her get hers back, and the sequel taking that away from her is just doing her dirty. What did you think of the whole structure of the story? Because it's, it's got kind of it kind of hops around quite a bit. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, um, I think that it moves through the chunks of it very well. Like, you know, we have Noel, young and naive, you know, getting done over by Larry. Then we have the long sequence of her kind of rise and um, clandestinely fucking with him from France. Um, <laughs> it's just so great. <laughs> I guess, yeah, because we've got, first of all, we've got the framing device, right? Where she's in the prison. Which I'm not entirely sure we need that, to be honest. But anyway, so we know that Catherine dies from... Oh, well, she's supposed to have died anyway. I guess that's why they've probably had the framing device. So we think she's died when she hasn't. But I think you can definitely see that twist coming. Yeah, basically as soon as she, we don't actually see her dead, I thought, oh, I think I know where this is going. Um, yeah, I don't know how you can possibly um, commit two people to death when you don't even have the body. That did seem a bit unlikely. Um, but yeah, I love the, the. There is this long period where Noel becomes famous, and you get all this salacious sex scenes, um, and the one where she's spraying perfume on her body and. Um, rubbing it in her lips <laughs> maybe not one to watch with your um your female partner <laughs> um but i think <laughs> i think that kind of the sex scenes are kind of cringe like do you think they're supposed to be a bit cringe i i don't know if they didn't intend them to then um it's a happy accident but yeah they are just kind of over the top and cringy and yeah the like i've i've never worn perfume but i don't think it's supposed to go on lips like i feel like the lips would be a very sensitive part to put perfume on which usually has some like caustic elements to it so and i certainly wouldn't want to kiss somebody with lip with perfume on their lips because it probably tastes awful um so yeah, it, well, also the lips shortly go somewhere else as well. That's yeah, that's true. But I, I guess it's it's kind of like the damages thing where they just kind of throw darts at the wall and hope that someone will find it sexy, and it it just comes across as weird um, and kind of alien like. Uh, but yeah, the the sex scenes were cringy but in you know in a movie like this i mean you need a bit of that uh there yeah i mean they were no less cringy than i think than the montages of larry romancing noel and cat and then catherine just like the most kind of those are the only kind of boring parts of the movie for me just kind of these stereotypical uh wooing scenes that didn't seem necessary and those went on far too long um I think, but I I think really I would have liked Larry to be a little more suave. Like, I don't know if it's the character or just this guy, John Beck, who was playing him. Um, I have no idea who this guy is, but I just don't buy him as a lady killer. He's certainly not, you know, he's not exactly a heartthrob, is he? I mean, he's fine and everything, and um, 
but especially, I mean, especially Noel can do a lot better, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he just doesn't strike me as somebody who, you know, someone would dedicate eight years of their life to seeking revenge and destroying and then kind of imprisoning to hate fuck for the rest of your life um like what what is it about him other like so many men screwed her over in her life why was larry the one who she had to have back and had to you know make her pet it just i don't know whatever he doesn't strike me as the kind of person who someone would go to that lengths for I guess, though, if it was somebody that was sympathetic, um, the film wouldn't really work. Like with, I think, I mean, I think the audience will largely be pleased that they die um, because they're both as bad as each other, really. And uh, Mm -hmm. that's what makes the payoff of the ending where you see her in Catherine in the convent so much more um, valuable, you know? So it's... I think obviously he has to be somebody dislikable, but I agree he could be somebody more attractive, attractively dislikable. Yeah. No, no, he definitely needs to be dislikable. He definitely needs to be a cad. Um, But there are cads that you can believe would ensnare um, these women. I mean, even like Catherine, you know, what does she see in him? That's a bigger question. Yeah. That's a bigger question for me, definitely, because she's a career woman. She's got she's got it all. She doesn't need, you know. He he seems to drag her down. He he loses jobs even before Noel's involved. He loses a couple of jobs, doesn't he, from punching people? Yeah. So yeah, and once it becomes obvious that he's you know still enthralled and has no intention of not being with Noel. Why does she? Why doesn't she just say, "Okay, I'm going home, have a nice life"? Uh, it does. That doesn't make much sense to me. No. I have to say, I loved that sequence in the caves, um, because when they go, when he goes back to her and says, "Oh, I love you," I thought that was genuine because Noella just basically said, "Oh, I've got my wedding dress. I loved you forever." And I'm thinking, surely he's going to be turned off by that. But no, <laughs> he he actually wants, he actually likes that um, and has decided to kill off Catherine. But the, the actual scene of them going t- into the caves, you can sense what's going to happen, but I r- was really gripped by it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the only thing that made me think she was going to survive was the fact that there was still 40 minutes left in the movie. Um, but... Yeah, I liked that scene a lot. Uh, it was very tense and very uh, interesting. And there were actually paintings. Like, he wasn't just making it up as he went along to get her deep into the cave. He actually took her where there's there were these paintings to see, which is uh, was was actually the biggest twist to me, was that he, act- he actually knew those were there and he was actually leading her somewhere, you know, legitimately interesting. Yeah, I think... Why is it called The Other Side of Midnight? I don't know. Maybe because, you know, 
that's when, you know, kind of seedy shit like this happens, you know, late at night, whatever. I don't know. I don't know. Just I didn't really think about it. It's the kind of, it's a kind of like Douglas Sirk kind of title that you don't really question, but that kind of just perfectly encapsulates the movie anyway. Yeah, like it could be about anything. Yeah. Uh, what about Irene Sharaf's costume design? There's some lot. There's a lot of really good costumes in here, um, and I think that overall they work for the characters. Especially, you know, Noel has a lot of very gorgeous um, gowns and dresses that you know reflect her increasing status, but also reflect her, you know, constant, uh, constant hunt for a man to advance up the ladder. So she's always kind of hu- she's always kind of on the hunt, I guess, and I think that's reflected very well in her costume and in the costume design of her. And then at the same time, you have Susan Sarandon um, being dressed in you know very prim and you know career woman kind of clothing that also kind of advances more as she becomes more sure of herself. So I actually like the costume design quite a lot in this. Yeah, I thought. I thought the film was like almost like a fashion show at times. Like it's, it's ridiculous how great some of the costumes are. There's even a turban at one point. Um, I think the filmmakers have have just given Sharaf complete carte blanche to do whatever she wants, uh, and she's just gone for it in a major way. I think there's even a scene where Noelle's in a waiting room, and there's a woman sitting opposite her who doesn't even have a line to say. This is early in the film. And the woman sitting in the waiting room has just got this stunningly chic outfit on. And I'm thinking, like, this is somebody, this is like an extra who doesn't even have a line. Um, so, I, like, I felt the whole way through it was this was like basically a showcase of costume design. This is how to do it. I was pretty wowed by this one. Yeah, definitely. And the fact that n- none of the characters seem to wear the same costume twice. Uh, so she had a lot of work to do, um, and she really goes all out. Yeah, like you say, even the extras are like a cabaret line. Even the extras are beautiful, so it really works well. Yeah, and we didn't mention the performances, but I do think um, the performances of the two leading women, Marie-France Pizier and Susan Sarandon, are good um, and work well for the film. In very different ways. Yep. I had the, you know, I did have the same problem with this movie as I did with A Little Night Music, that at no point do these women think of blaming Larry. Or maybe, I I actually kind of thought when uh, she shows up, when Noelle shows up at the house towards the end of the film, uh, and I, I didn't think Larry was there. I thought it was just Catherine. And I thought, are they finally going to have it out? And are they going to maybe realize they have a common enemy and team up and just get get rid of Larry and solve all their problems? Um, it was a fleeting hope, but uh, I I had more hope that that would happen in this film because it was you know a modern film set in modern times, seventies liberation and all that. But it didn't, and I was very disappointed by that. That at no point did Noel and Catherine have a scene together where they. Uh, kind of fought it out, but eventually realized that they were more similar than they realized. Yeah, that was disappointing. Um, 
Although I do think Noel, Noel's obviously a product of her father um, from the beginning and her attitude towards men is unhealthy, it seems, because of that, because of what men have done to her. So I did feel like um, as a character, she wasn't as bad as Larry. Larry was just a sleazeball, basically. Um, so I do think that on the whole, the female characters are presented um, as more sympathetic. Oh, yeah, definitely. Sadly, no Oscar nominations for Memories of Midnight, so we cannot um, have part two. Yep, shame, shame. I'll still watch it, though, because it sounds interesting. But uh, all of these films lost, perhaps predictably, to Star Wars. Um, The big winner of the year, uh, nominated for Best Picture, didn't win, but still came away with six Oscars, uh, which was more than the Best Picture winner. So not a bad haul for Star Wars. And I think it also picked up a technical award for the um, robot design. So not bad for Star Wars. And it won Best Costume Design, I think, pretty obvious win. Hmm. Yeah, I think... I mean, obviously, Star Wars, we've both seen this before, but it's kind of like where the franchise model of movies was born, really. Um, and this idea of, you know, kind of new idea of memorabilia, um, apart from Disney, obviously. Um, but memorabilia is a finance model for film studios. I think, you know, people really loved these characters they bought into it hook, line, and sinker. People went to see it multiple times. Um, and George Lucas even renamed this after the fact to Star Wars Episode Four, so he could do the whole origin story. So I think now, obviously, Lucas has teamed with Disney now, and it's it's truly been turned into a cash cow that could go on for decades to come. But this, in its original form, is an original piece of work. It's a great piece of pop culture, um, and as a sci-fi fantasy story, it, it's definitely a bit of a trailblazer. Yeah, um, the idea of taking the hero's journey and putting it in space was a good one. And overall, I think that the film is fun um, as a little, you know, sci-fi fantasy. I. <laughs> I know that this is dangerous to say on the internet, but I think this the movie is kind of dumb in parts. Um, it's and am, am I wrong or is this this clearly is marketed as kind of a children's adventure story? Um, I, I I don't think it's wrong to think it's a good movie as an adult or anything like that, but I think that the story and the characters and everything is for younger viewers it seems like it's going it has it has crossover for sure but it seems marketed more towards a younger audience yeah it's certainly light um and the the peril is mild (laughs) like at no point do you ever feel like anybody good's gonna die i mean i know obi-wan kenobi dies um but like in terms of whenever 
ish. But whenever the um, the ray guns come out and they're kind of like dodging them, you can, at no point do you ever think, oh, they're going to get hit by <laughs> by the beam, you know. So, um, and I think Alec Guinness doesn't even get threatened. Really, he's he's having the fight. It's not like he's under um, attack like the other guys are. But um, I think. Obviously, you've got the comedic value between R2-D2 and C-3PO, which again brings it into lighter territory. Um, and that continues throughout the first three films. But I kind of think there's some really laugh-out-loud moments there <laughs> involving them. Um, like, I love the bit where the sand person fires at R2-D2 and he just falls flat on his face, like, on the floor. <laughs> it's just just like classic comedic timing. Um and the C-3PO's sort of reluctance to um, to get on with R2-D2 kind of being broken down throughout. It's like a nice little through line to take us away from the um, the sort of larger story of, you know, warfare. Yeah, and that's nice. Um, although I did find it a little bit of a dick move for C-3PO when he gets bought at by Luke and and his uncle and they all and they almost take the wrong R2 unit they take the red one you know idiots but um C3PO just kind of looks back as he walks away like he very eagerly just walks away with Luke and he kind of looks back at R2 and R2 gives him a sad little but C3PO doesn't say anything and then the other R2 happens to break down and then he says Oh, what about my buddy? But he was just going to walk away. He was just going to leave him with these sand people. And that was kind of... I thought that was kind of mean. Yeah. But are they connected? I guess they're they're droids, though, aren't they? At the end of the day. They're kind of... Well, they seem to have a... They seem to have a relationship from the get-go. I mean, maybe they're not best of friends, but they are together when we first see them escaping the Death Star together. And see, and R2 does, I mean, I guess, want C-3PO to come with him because he's in the, he's getting the escape pod ready and then he beeps a bit and C-3PO says, no, I'm not coming. So like R2 saying, come on, get in, come with me. Um, so they seem to have a relationship. And also how much of the movie depends on the Imperial grunt just not doing their job right? Like the escape pod gets jettisoned and they're like, uh, Whatever, droids aren't a thing. Uh, just let it go. If they just shot that... Oh, yeah, that's that's a big plot hole. They should have shot the, yep. the pod. Yeah. But but then even later, when the stormtroopers are going house to house on um, whatever the, uh, the, the city they go to where they meet up with Han, um, and they just are going through and they... And C-3PO and R2, like, lock themselves inside... And they're passing by the street and they try the door. They're like, it's locked. Move on. Why? You know, like, wouldn't that be more suspicious? Like, obviously the door locks from the inside. Check that out. There's a couple of other moments as well. There's like one where the stormtrooper is stationed outside the ship. And Harrison Ford shouts, can you give us a hand with this? Mm -hmm. And then (laughs) (laughs) he just goes in, leaves his post. And then there's another time where there's a group of them, but one of them gets shot and the others just run away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Um, it really is kind of ridiculous. And of course, I think, don't they get retconned in the later movies to be like not human or or clones or robots or something like that? I don't know. I, I'm hazy on the rest of it. But I in- don't see how they can be because John Boyega played a stormtrooper in the Force Awakens and then defects. Oh, okay. Okay. But yeah, so this, they're, but they're definitely flesh and blood in this, just wearing the flimsiest armor you can think of. Like, what is that armor supposed to protect them from? Seriously, they have, la- they have laser weapons and it doesn't do anything to stop lasers. And it looks just, it basically looks like hockey equipment. Um, so, you know, it'll, it'll maybe deflect a small rock if it gets thrown and isn't a direct shot, but a laser um, or a blaster, to use the correct terminology. Um, yeah, ridiculous. Yeah. I, <laughs> I think, um, do you think that Alec Guinness being hired is to to sort of make it seem less dumb? You know, because obviously Alec Guinness is quite majestic as a performer, Um and he's got to sell all of this history concerning the Jedi Knights and the theory behind the Force, which could so easily come across as gobbledygook. So I, I really thought he was quite beneficial to the movie. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, for sure. He he lends a touch of class to the proceedings that it wouldn't have had without him. Um, and I am glad he's there. I don't think he was glad he was there, but um, he, I don't, I don't think he enjoyed it. Um, although he did negotiate a pretty canny, uh, a pretty canny contract where he got royalties. So that definitely paid off. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think he was very happy with it. Although he does do a good job in the film. I like his performance in it. Um, overall, I think the actors are pretty good. Um, obviously Harrison Ford's great. Carrie Fisher's good. Um, yeah, they, they actually take it relatively seriously. And it's interesting because I think we see the same um, thing here that we saw in the airport saga. Like the original airport features good actors actually acting well. And then as the genre advanced, it got less and less important. And I think the same thing happened with the genre that this film spawned. So here they're still kind of uh, treating it like a real movie. But... Um, Eventually, that kind of slid aside, I think, especially in the later sequels and such. Yeah, well, I think, obviously, you know, the decision to cast relatively unknown actors is probably to do with budget in this case. But um, it's it's a tradition that's continued um, in the recent batch of films where the, the two leads, Boyega and Daisy Ridley, um, are basically just handpicked um, from auditions. Um, I kind of remember the acting from Hamill and Ford and Fisher being worse than it is. I think watching it this time, it's very serviceable and quite good, um, even from Hamill, to be honest. And I think, to be honest, the acting not so important in a film like this anyway, where there's so many other things going on to engage the audience. Um, the directing, I noticed this time, a lot of screen wipes and fades, um, and which feels very economical. And I feel like Lucas 
doesn't wait until scenes reach a natural conclusion. It's sort of like as soon as all of the information's been divulged, boom, next scene, wipe the screen. So it can feel a little bit abrupt and clunky. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder what that was about. Um, it did kind of mess with the pacing and mess with it uh, at several points. And yeah, too many of that kind of thing that I maybe we've been just kind of spoiled against it by years of PowerPoint and cheap transitions in that. But yeah, the, the wipes and the fades and the ups and the downs and that kind of thing really bugged me. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, George Lucas's direction is fine, but I think he had bigger things on his mind. Um, so maybe that explains it. And, but yeah, um, the acting is serviceable. I I would say serviceable. Yeah. Although, what? okay. Obi-Wan Kenobi keeps the name Kenobi. When he's in hiding. I mean, I'm not the first person to point this out, but what the hell? Like, and how idiotic is that? You go into hiding, you're trying to avoid being discovered by the Empire, and you keep the same name you had. Like, nobody would check that out. Like, there are obviously Imperial forces on this planet, and nobody notices that there's a guy the exact same age as this wanted rebel fugitive with the same last name. Well, also, what's he been doing all these years? Like, it seems like he just wanders into the scene when finds Luke um, in trouble. And it's kind of like, where have you come from? <laughs> like, <laughs> it, it felt very random. Um, well, maybe we'll get a, uh, maybe we'll get, a standalone Obi-Wan film out of the, you know, approximately 8,000 Star Wars movies that are going to be coming out now that Disney has the property. And even though those, even though those just fuck with the story uh, more than anything else, um, it would be maybe a fun one to do. One of the only new um, Star Wars films I've seen actually is um, the Rogue One one, that is supposed to plug up the plot hole in this one about the Death Star's weakness, but actually just makes it even worse and opens up a whole batch of new plot holes, which I guess they'll have to make more movies to plug. But whatever, we're not we're not talking about that. Um. I think, like, you know, do you remember when we were talking about Back to the Future and that that felt very much like an '80s version of what the future might be? I think in Star Wars. I know this is supposed to be the past, but in terms of the impression of advanced technology, it does feel like it may be a little bit entrenched in the 70s and current 70s trends that would grow out very quickly, Um, particularly with fonts and system graphics and things like that. does feel like they haven't considered that things might change. I know they can't tell the future, but it did feel very much part of the era in that way. Yeah. Although I do think the production design itself is very good. Yeah, I, I do too. Um, I think that the ideas behind the set designs and the overall um, look of the film are quite good. Uh, and I like the idea of 
a civilization or in a universe where interplanetary travel is usual, but you still have people um, living basically like in poverty like they do today in kind of lean-tos and and sand buildings and such. Um, so I, I liked that kind of combination. I like that vision of the future where some things change, but others uh, stay the same. Even though, again, it's it's the past, obviously. It's supposed to be a long, long time ago, whatever. Um, but... <laughs> so what about the costumes? I mean, obviously, um, it had to be the most ambitious of the five nominees in terms of costume design um, because they had to create a new world. And I think that uh, sci-fi... sci-fi movies are you know well well regarded by the branch i mean we definitely see a lot of sci-fi and fantasy films nominated simply i think because of that commitment to just creating a look that is you know on the one hand human you know recognizable as clothing humans would wear but on the other hand uh transporting you to a different world and so um, I think that this is one of the films where they do that very well. Like, it's not just because it's sci-fi and not just because it's all different. Um, but I, I really like the costume design in this one um, because I think it does reflect the world and the story and the characters really well. Yeah, I think everything um, that is sort of a uniform or armor... Um, it's creative, given that it's not fashion in that sense. It is very different from the other side of Midnight, where that was kind of could have gone on the catwalk. This is sort of, yeah, again, world building. The Darth Vader outfit is the one that stands out as iconic. Um, and, if, you know, kind of the Western trope, the villain is the one who wears black. Um, but even like the Stormtrooper helmets feel very menacing um, would you count the lightsabers as costume design? That's kind of creative. Um, I think some occasionally you would get people running in like jeans. They just look like jeans. <laughs> like somebody <laughs> in the background. I think you're like, okay, they've not. They can't afford to kit out the people in the background, the extras. Um, but you would get like somebody in these tight jeans. Um, but yeah, I. I thought it was strong. It's very creative. Yeah. I just, I kind of wish that I was able to see the original print or the original version of this film before it got fucked with. Um, because there's so much, so many idiotic things that were added to this um, in the intervening years that, for example, um, just this like some of the computer generated animals that have been just kind of dropped in and you know making sure they all make noises so you see them and you're like oh look yeah very clever um i i wish they just left this film alone i mean it's fine the way it is it doesn't need a special edition or any new elements to fix it um so when did you first see this film do you think I think I saw it on TV when I was a teenager. Um, mm. And I think, I mean, the thing about adding things to a, you know, 
40-year-old film, 45-year-old film, I think people are capable of watching a film from a certain era and respecting the time that it's made in and the limitations of the era. Um, and there was definitely seemed to be parts of the version I watched that would not have been there originally. Um, but I did have the DVDs that I bought like 20 odd years ago. So I guess they might, they would probably have been uh, the original film. But I thought, let's watch the 1080 pixel version, which was maybe a mistake. But yeah, I've seen them. I've seen these a few times. I've not seen it for a while, so I didn't fully remember the story. But it's kind of made me want to watch the other two. Empire Strikes Back particularly really enjoyed that one first time around. Yeah, as I recall, I mean, I, I first saw this when I was like 27. So definitely came to the party late. Um, and I did, it was a marathon where I just watched the whole trilogy in, in one day. Um, so I remember Empire being quite good, and I remember, um, the third one, Return of the Jedi, being the third one. Um, but... Less good, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but pretty sure, um, just to briefly address one of the controversial aspects of this one i think the first time i watched this it was a dvd or a vhs or something where uh han solo you know shoots greedo without being shot at first like he just shoots him in the canteen did you have did you see that version i don't think so no okay i remember Okay, because that's um, one of the dumbest changes to me, and I think a lot of people, um, a lot of very, very passionate people, uh, had a problem with that change where Greedo shoots at Han first and he responds by shooting him. Um, And I don't, yeah, it's kind of a weird choice uh, to change. Kind of ruins the scene, but... But, yeah, whatever. Um... Although, okay, one thing that struck me watching it again was that the ending was pretty stupid. Like, not the, not the you know, part where they're blowing up the Death Star, although I do wonder why they have to approach going down that narrow trench where they're just sitting ducks. Um, that seems dumb. But I'm talking about how it ends with just a medal ceremony, uh, like they just won a track event at their high school and it f- cut to credits or wiped to credits, actually. Um, it's a very sort of traditional ending, isn't it? Sort of the heroes have been anointed kind of thing. Yeah, but also there's no real indication what a big deal it is that they just blew up the friggin' Death Star and crippled the Empire. Um, we don't get a sense that this was a huge moment for the rebels and for this war. And I think that's another thing, like you were saying how the stakes don't seem high. I don't get a sense in this film as a standalone film that this is this big giant galaxy spanning conflict. It seems very contained and very small, even when they blow up a planet. Yeah, I think it's kind of, by virtue of being the first one in the series um, 
of sort of if we are going to call it a, a children's or a you know young adult style where they always start off lighter and then get darker um yes although i i don't entirely buy that lucas always intended this to be a trilogy because there's just too much about this first one that makes it seem like he designed it as a standalone film um obviously they're because they blow up the death star they get their medals everybody's happy roll credits there's no i mean yeah you get vader spinning away and maybe he's coming back but there's no real indication that the empire is going to strike back but the way george lucas sells it now he has built this entire mythology around the oh i always envisioned it at this as this you know nine film series and i had all the plots in my head and since i was six and i knew i wanted to do this i don't buy it um I think maybe he had an idea that he wanted to do more with these characters, but um, beyond that, I don't think I don't think he had any of the twists in mind at this point. I don't think he had any of the specific plot details in mind. I'm saying this with absolutely no evidence, but it's just what I think. All right, shall we do list of questions? All right, our first question comes from Zeta Short. And she asks, did your knowledge of the scandal surrounding Pentimento cloud your judgment when it came to evaluating Julia? Well, I have to admit that I didn't know about the scandal until researching for this episode. Um, So it didn't play a part in my psyche at all. And again, I think it's a shame that if she has embellished all of that to make it part of her own life, um, that's sad because she was such a talented writer. Um, I really like the children's hour. But I think overall it does seem like she took herself too seriously and, and maybe began to buy into her own importance too much and wanted people to think she was a better person than she was. So it's a shame, but no, it didn't clam my judgment because I didn't know about it. And it also doesn't retroactively affect my view of the film either. Yep. Um, I agree, and I feel the same way. I think all the flaws uh, in the film are there regardless of whether she made it up or not, or whether the scandal um, is has a basis in fact or not. So, yeah. James asks, he says, The only thing I can really remember about Julia is Jane Fonda's giant and very important to the plot hat. Did this help to get the film nominated? Generally, does a costume being integral to the plot help get a nomination? Any favourite examples? Well, um, I I think I said when we were talking about it that, yeah, I think um, when the costume designers see a hat playing a role like that in the film, they feel that they should recognise it. Um, I guess also the fact that, you know, Julia just had so many nominations uh, overall, it kind of was just in a lot of people's minds. And the fact that it's a period piece um, helps it a lot, too. Um, I don't know if a costume being integral to the plot helps it get a nomination. Uh, I think it's very important. And I think if I were voting in the Oscars, that would be what I would look for primarily. Um, That would probably be my top concern when it came to nominating something. Well, it certainly can't hurt, can it? Um because you want people to remember 
the costumes um, if you want to get a nomination. I think Julia is the kind of film that would get one anyway. Um, I think in terms of examples, that there's Kelly MacDonald's um, Death by Poison Dress in Elizabeth, which got a Best Costume Design nomination. But then again, Elizabeth is exactly the kind of film that's going to get nominated for costumes anyway. Um, and I think although it's not integral to the plot, the green dress in Atonement definitely helped it to be nominated because everyone remembered it and it featured a lot in the promotional material for the movie. So I think it's all about, it's not necessarily about being integral to the plot. I think it's about people remembering certain outfits and that will help get the nomination. Yeah. Um, And I can think of several examples based on just our episodes that we've done on this category, like um, Death on the Nile I think had very great costumes that were also well integrated. Um, and of course uh, we did Priscilla queen of the desert and how can you deny that those costumes were characters in themselves? Um, and also queen, queen Margot from that year also had really great combination of historical costumes that also reflected the kind of seediness of the story. So um, that was great as well. Yeah. Um, and then we have a couple of questions that kind of provide us a good segue into our snub segment, because Andrew Carden asks, did Ruth Morley deserve a nom for Annie Hall? And Zombie Socks 009 says, no Saturday Night Fever? What happened? So, yeah, a couple of, um, a couple of 1977 films with noticeable costume design yeah snubbed or left off the list so what do you make of that well i think absolutely ruth morley did deserve a nomination for annie hall um i think sadly we know that the costume design branch can be reluctant to nominate contemporary costumes but the sheer creativity and idiosyncrasy of the designs in annie hall make make it stand out for me and also more importantly it informs on Annie's personality, which is what we look for in costume design. In terms of Saturday Night Fever, contemporary in a, in a less interesting way for me. Um, sort of disco outfits, fine, but um, I'm certainly not sorry it didn't get nominated. Mm-hmm. Yep, um, I would agree. Annie Hall definitely deserved it. Um, how much of it was Ruth Morley and how much of it was, you know, just Diane Keaton's own wardrobe. Um, You know, we get conflicting reports of that. Did she just show up in that outfit or did Ruth Morley, uh, you know, at least go and help her pick it out? I don't know, but definitely Ruth Morley, great costume design. And it's unfortunate that, yeah, the Academy is generally reticent um, to nominate contemporary movies that aren't kind of, glamorous like the other side of midnight indeed yeah i think um to to move on to snubs um the one that i had first was judy harris for the slipper and the rose which got a couple of nominations this year and was bafta nominated for best costume design and judy harris had won an oscar for darling back in the 60s and that's kind of a period fantasy um which the academy uh are not averse to in this category 
Mm-hmm. Yep, that's one. Um, I I have a snub that isn't really a snub because the film was ineligible, but there's a Japanese horror film called House from 1977 that I think would have been an amazing nominee in this category. Um, but like I say, it's ineligible because it wasn't released uh, in the United States, I think, until well into the 2000s. So um, unfortunately not probably not seen at the time i have to say i've never heard of it oh it's it's a wild ride (laughs) um i also wanted to mention albert wolski for the turning point um which seems like it got 11 nominations so why not that one um and also theodora van runkel for new york new york which um was snubbed everywhere uh, unjustly um but she was very popular with the branch and i believe that's also a period piece too mm-hmm. yep i i was going to say the turning point too and then i also um was going to mention madame rosa um which won for foreign language film this year and had some very i think very good very gaudy kind of costume design that i think could have been recognized yeah Although honestly, the th- the films that the costume branch dominated this year, it could have been anything, to be honest. Very true. So um, now we come to the question: Why did Star Wars win, and was this close? Well, um, I think obviously it won six slash seven Oscars, and. It was the visual um, showcase of the year, and which can't hurt. Interestingly, its uh, costume designer was not somebody particularly well known to the branch or popular with the branch. So, which makes this win all the more, um, I think, probably a product of the film's success. And um, although I do think that the costume design is strong. I think this is more to do with the film sweeping a lot of technicals. Yeah, agreed. Um, and of course, John Molo would go on to win a second costume design um, Oscar for Gandhi a few years after this. So he became known. He did, yes. Obviously yep. a British. <laughs> yeah. Um, yep. <laughs> but yeah, I don't think it was close, right? No. I doubt it very much. Um, in fact, most, I mean, that's the only reason I can think why Airport 77 was nominated because people were just like, yeah, Star Wars and then whatever. Yeah, this, these other movies. Um, and, oh, Edith Head did a movie this year? All right, yeah, let's let's nominate her. No disrespect at all to Edith Head. She's a, a legend, rightly, but not her best work here. Well, the guy nominated alongside Edith Head must have been like, really? <laughs> yep and so um, wider observations on um, on 1977 well I suppose we have to mention the turning points 11 nominations um, without winning which is a record yep yep pretty brutal yeah very brutal um I guess, technically speaking, it tied a record for the most losses because, of course, Beckett 
also lost 11 Oscars, but won one out of its 12 nominations. So yeah, this one definitely uh, the the worst shutout in the history. And it's, yeah, that's awful. I mean, how do you, how do you do that? I mean, the turn, I mean, Spielberg knows because he did it with the color purple, but yeah, 0 for 11, that's uh, it's a hell of a shutout. Yeah, although I, I'm not sure what I would have given it personally. Um, but then I haven't seen that movie in a long time. I only really remember the, the cat fight in the bar. I think it's like, is there a cat fight? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I actually just watched that movie today for the first time. Um, and yeah, I, I think I might give it a supporting actor. Definitely would give it a... I liked Barishnikov over Robards and uh, Shell. Um, I haven't seen Equus, so I don't know uh, how Peter Firth is in that. Um, He's good. But Yeah. Okay. So having not seen one of the nominees, I think that might be the one I'd, I'd give it to. Um, mm. Because I don't know what else I would give it, yeah, if I'm looking at its other nominations. But I guess with Star Wars winning seven a lot of those categories the turning point would have been involved in, right? So Yeah, yeah. Um also we've got Star Wars winning seven six or seven Oscars without winning Best Picture, which is a lot. Um we mentioned before that Cabaret holds the record with eight. And um also that included George Lucas's wife, Marcia who won for Best Film Editing. Not bad. Hmm. So at least they they have one Oscar in the house. (laughs) No, actually, they they don't anymore because they got divorced, but... (laughs) They did, yeah. Yeah. Um, We've got Woody Allen was the first person nominated for actor, director, and screenplay since Orson Welles, the Citizen Kane. Yep, and very nearly won them all. And of course, Warren Beatty said, all right, if he can do it, I can, and then he did it twice. (laughs) All right, any more, or shall we rank these? I think I'm ready to rank them. So number five, I've got Airport 77. Sorry, Edith. Um, I think you may have been slightly fortunate to get the nomination for this Lee Grant did have um, a great outfit but in general uh, the the costume design was unremarkable A Little Night Music I think lots of great hats which we didn't mention very good hats in A Little Night Music Um, but I think it all looked sort of similar uh, for me the styles were similar all that changed were the colours and it did look a little cheap Number three, I've got Julia. I think the costume design wasn't great, but what there was of it looked well-tailored and suited the period and suited the women. Um, Number two, I've got Star Wars. I think the originality of the Stormtroopers and Darth Vader's outfits are um, very impressive. Overall, what sort of the other characters were wearing I thought was just fine not great um, 
And by an absolute million miles, I've got the other side of midnight number one, because every in every scene, somebody would just walk in and look fantastic. So I think this is definitely a glamour uh, win for me. I think Irene Sharaf brings the glamour in in a huge way. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. Um, and yeah, pretty close. Um, I have Airport 77 at the bottom. Um, yeah, just what it, what's going on here. Um, it's the swarm of 1977. Um, number four, I have Julia. I mean, that hat gives its all. Um, but overall I found, I found the costume design competent, but nothing too noteworthy. And I guess to me, unlike some other categories where I like, when I don't notice things, like if the cinematography is so smooth or the editing is so smooth, it doesn't draw attention to itself. I kind of want the costume design to draw me in a little bit more, you know? Um, so even though it's was perfectly historically accurate and competent, I, you know, I can't give it the, any higher than that. Number three, I have a little night music. I agree with everything you said. It's a little shoddy, a little plain, but at least there wasn't a, an attempt was made. Um, and yeah, nice hat, nice hats, nice hats. Uh, number two, I also have star Wars, um, because maybe the costume design is the least important of the visual elements that it won for. Um, and even though it does have some imaginative costume design, uh, I feel like it isn't I mean, it's very, very good, and it paints the universe very, very well, but um, it couldn't... Yeah, I also have the other side of Midnight at the top for the same reasons you were saying. It's just a a stunning display of costume design, um, and Irene Sharaf, rightly um, a legend in this field, um, this is, you know, like Edith Head, I think this is her last Oscar nomination in a long career of nominations and wins so it's a hell of a high note to go out on so really great work absolutely it did remind me of death on the nile where you just get somebody walking in and you think god she's done it again you know (laughs) it just seemed to be a succession of just um just wonderful glamour Okay, so we have a website. It's categoricallyoscars.com. We're on Twitter at Categorically O. What are we doing next episode? Next episode, we are welcoming back uh, Zeta Short to the podcast, who we had on last time to discuss best writing at the second Academy Awards. And this time around, we are going to be talking about the best actress lineup of the eighth Academy Awards in 1935 which were Elizabeth Bergner for Escape Me Never, Claudette Colbert, Private Worlds, Catherine Hepburn, Alice Adams, Miriam Hopkins, Becky Sharp, Merle Oberon, The Dark Angel, and, no, it did not misspeak, six nominees, the winner, Betty Davis in Dangerous. Very excited for this, Um, although I think I'm going to have to defend George Stevens at some point (laughs) during the episode. (laughs) you may have to you may have to (laughs) okay guys thanks for listening thanks for all your questions Um, we'll be back with a new episode next week see you then
A weekend in the country. But it's frightful. No, you don't understand. A weekend in the country is delightful if it's planned. Wear your hair down and a flower. Don't use makeup, dress in white. She'll grow older by the hour and be hopelessly shattered by Saturday night. Spend a weekend in the country. We'll accept it. I had a feeling you would. A weekend in the country. Yes. It's only polite to be sure. Good. Well? I've an intriguing little social item. What? Out of the arm felt family man. Well, what? Nearly a weekend. Still, I thought it might amuse you to know who's invited to go this time with his pants. You don't mean... I'll give you three guesses. She wouldn't. Reduce it to two. It can't be. But nevertheless, it's... Eggerman. Right score one for you. Aha! Aha! Aha. A weekend in the country, we should try it. Oh, I wish we'd been asked. A weekend in the country, peace and quiet. We'll go masked. A weekend in the country. Uninvited, they'll consider it odd. A weekend in the country, I'm delighted. Oh, my God. And the shooting should be pleasant if the weather's not rough. Happy birthday, it's your present. But you haven't been getting out nearly enough. And a weekend in the country. It's perverted. Pack my quiver and bow. A, a weekend, weekend in, in the, the country. country. Ah! It's exactly 2.30, we go.